This podcast was produced by ORFM Dunedin with support from New Zealand On the Air. Hello and welcome to Heritage Matters, a programme brought to you and sponsored by the Southern Heritage Trust. I'm Dougal Stevenson. Like most of you, we're on holiday now, and we thought you might like to hear some of our best stories from 2021. In this programme, Gregor Campbell looks at a 19th century Dunedin conman. Bill Southworth follows the career of Sir Peter Buck, an investigative reporter pretending to be drunk gets locked up, and comic books are fondly remembered. Computer scams and how to avoid the criminals who prey on the unwary have been much in the news lately. But as Gregor Campbell discovered, conmen have been around for a long time. He looks at a successful one in Dunedin. The internet has allowed humans in all parts of the world to contact, observe, help and sympathise with each other. It has, of course, also become the tool of what was known in centuries past as the confidence tracker. The first appearance in Dunedin of such a specimen was recorded by the ODT in 1883. An enterprising young man, who passed by the name of B.H. Porter, planned and executed a very ingenious confidence track in Dunedin last week. And anxious inquiries are consequently being made for him just now. The individual in question professed to have arrived in the Janet Nicole from the North Island and certain evidence left behind him seems to show that he has been connected in some way with odd fellows in the Auckland district. At all events, he took up his temporary abode in Gladstone House, Moray Place and proceeded to advertise in the papers for stage novices whom he desired to engage for country towns in Australia. Stage novices, male and female, rose to the bait with astonishing readiness, and for a couple of days a servant at the boarding house was kept tolerably busy, showing in ladies and gentlemen who only wanted opportunity to develop their latent histrionic powers. The applicants were interviewed separately by Mr Porter in his consulting room in a thoroughly professional style, and he represented himself to them as an accredited agent for Messrs Williamson, Garner and Musgrove. Certain of these unwary ones nearly a dozen names have transpired, consented to accept engagements and to proceed to Melbourne by the Tarawera, which left last Friday. As a mere matter of business, in order to ensure their keeping faith, Mr Porter was compelled to request each recruit to deposit with him the trifling sum of one pound to be returned to them upon their presenting themselves at the wharf on the morning of the vessel's departure. They were, of course, to have the gratification of meeting Mr Porter again on that occasion and receiving from him then tickets for the passage. Some of the victims appear to have been sufficiently suspicious to ask the pseudo-agent a few pertinent questions, but these were easily parried. Mr Porter explained that his Australian principals desired to introduce strangers upon the Victorian stage and were unable to get girls sufficiently respectable in that colony. This neat compliment appears to have settled the business with several of the fair debutantes. They paid their pound, for which no receipt was given, except in the case of a few male victims unworthily suspicious, even when dealing with such a pleasant-spoken gentleman as Mr E.H. Porter. The novices thus duly engaged 
went to work at once to prepare for the brilliant stage career now opening before them. Some proceeded to throw up their situations in Dunedin. There was a great packing of boxes, tears and lamentations from mothers obstinately opposed to the idea of brilliant stage careers, and a general upheaval of domestic relations. However, the young ladies protested that Mr Porter was the finest fellow out, that he was thoroughly genuine, and in short, that nothing would stop them. They were mistaken, though. One little circumstance did stop them. On the arrival of the novices at Port Chalmers with their luggage, they looked in vain for their pounds, their passage tickets, and the thoroughly genuine Mr Porter. On inquiry at his lodgings, it transpired that the day previous to the boat sailing, Mr Porter had found himself suddenly called upon to start on a visit to a friend at Clinton. He accordingly departed, leaving a security for his little board account, a carpet bag containing some linen in every respect ready for delivery to the washerwoman. Mr Porter has since then abstained from making any public appearance. It was rumoured that a man arrested at Oamaru for horse-stealing, who arrived in Dunedin last night and will appear in the police court this morning, was the pretended theatrical agent, but this proves entirely incorrect. The Mr Porter, who created so favourable an impression in the minds of visitors at Gladstone House, is a diminutive young man, about 25 years of age, 5 foot 3 or 4, in height of slender build with thin features and dark eyes. His shoulders are rather contracted, and he stoops in walking. He remained only one week in Dunedin, conducting his little manoeuvre to a successful issue, and during that time he wore a pepper-and-salt suit and an ordinary black felt hat. His movements since leaving Dunedin have so far been singularly discreet. Mr Porter is, of course, long gone. But his successors ply their trade from half a world away and, if they were not successful in a few percent of their many online attempts, they would not be in business. As a rule, if an offer looks too good to be true, it will be so. I am only good enough to be true, Gregor Campbell for Heritage Matters. Amongst the many distinguished graduates of the Otago Medical School, no reputation stands higher than that of Sir Peter Buck, a man whose main contributions lay not in medicine, but in his anthropological studies of Polynesian and Maori culture. Bill Southworth prepared this profile. Peter Buck's father was William Henry Buck, a Taranaki farmer who was from County Galway in Ireland, who married Narongo Kitua, of the Ngāti Mutanga Iwi. The marriage was childless and according to Maori custom, a near relative, Rina, came to the household to provide William Buck with a child. Peter was born in 1877 at Uranui. His birth mother died shortly afterwards and he was nurtured by Narongo, who he regarded as his mother. In later life, the name of an illustrious ancestor, Tarangi Hiroa, was bestowed on him by elders and he used this as his pen name. His father, who was himself an educated man, enrolled Buck at Teate College in the Hawke's Bay. In his final year, he was ducks at this Anglican-run school and captain its athletics team and the first 15. 
When he left Te Aute, he enrolled at the Otago Medical School and soon became one of its top students. In 1905, after he graduated medical school, he was appointed as medical officer to Māori, working as a deputy to Mao Pomari. Together, they worked to improve the sanitation of Māori settlements and helped to speed up the population recovery amongst Māori. Peter became a member of what is known as the Young Māori Party and was elected to Parliament for the Liberal Party in Northern Māori. He spent only five years in Parliament and then worked as a medical officer in the Cook Islands in Niue. This sparked a lifelong passion for anthropology, particularly the history and culture of Polynesia. But the First World War intervened and in 1915 Buck was sent to the Middle East with a Maori volunteer contingent he had actually helped to establish. The contingent was sent to Gallipoli, where it suffered heavy casualties. Fully a fifth of their number were killed or wounded. Buck was twice mentioned in dispatches and was finally awarded the Distinguished Service Order Medal. He was eventually promoted to Major and ended up as second in command of the Maori Battalion. Together they went through major battles in France and Belgium. After a period working in Maori health, Buck travelled widely in Polynesia and developed a keen interest in anthropological studies. In 1923, he made his mark by delivering a paper, The Coming of the Maori, at the Pacific Science Conference in Melbourne. The paper, which was expanded into a book, was for many years regarded as the standard introduction for students of Maori and anthropology at university. In the introduction to the seminal work, Buck observed the following. The ancestors of the Māori people entered New Zealand, mostly, if not altogether, from central Polynesia at different times. Thus, the Māori culture, which was functioning at the time of European contact, was not brought in its entirety from Polynesia. Neither was it developed wholly in New Zealand. Some elements were introduced, and others were developed locally. Hence, in historical reconstruction, the Polynesian background must be considered. Among the people themselves, no Māori was regarded as a scholar unless he was well-versed in the myths, legends and traditions referring to the land from which his colonising ancestors came. Buck became a research fellow at the Bishop Museum in Hawaii and began carrying out extensive fieldwork in Samoa. Over the next five years, he did research in most of the Polynesian island groups. When his research posting ended, he was given a full professorship at Yale University in the United States. He went on to become director of the Bishop Museum. Buck wanted to finish his career as an anthropologist in New Zealand, but there was no position for him here as the universities were unwilling to make appointments in the subject. In 1938, he published his most famous book, Vikings of the Sunrise, which became immensely popular in the United States and quickly went through several reprints. In it, he pointed out that Polynesians had sailed vast distances of the Pacific long before Columbus discovered America. In the book's prologue, he defended the title of the book. I may be criticised for applying the term Vikings to the Polynesian ancestors, but the term has come to mean bold, intrepid mariners, and so is not the monopoly of the hardy Norsemen of the North Atlantic. To the Polynesians, the sunset symbolised death and the spirit land to which they returned. But the sunrise was the symbol of life, hope, and new lands that awaited discovery. I am hopeful that Vikings of the sunrise will reach my kinsmen in the scattered isles of Polynesia and draw us together in the bond of the spirit. 
we have new problems before us. But we have a glorious heritage, for we come of the blood that conquered the Pacific with Stone Age vessels that sailed ever toward the sunrise. His directorship at the Bishop Museum was regularly renewed, even when he reached retirement age. He lived on as one of New Zealand's most famous expatriates until he was stricken with cancer in 1949. He returned to New Zealand to receive a knighthood from his old war comrade, Governor-General Sir Bernard Freiburg. Buck was called on to give many public lectures here and made final trips to many marae, including his own at Uranui. After he died in 1951, his ashes were laid to rest there. Despite the new techniques and scientific aids available to anthropologists today, Buck's standing remains undiminished, as does his mana in Maridum. His skill at communication is captured in the epilogue of Vikings of the Sunrise. The old world, created by our Polynesian ancestors, has passed away, and a new world is in the process of being fashioned. The stone temples have been destroyed, and the temple drums and shell trumpets have long been silent. Tane, Tu, Rongo, Tangaroa, and the other members of the divine family of the Sky Father and the Earth Mother have left us. The great voyaging canoes have crumbled to dust, and the sea captains and the expert craftsmen have passed away to the spirit land. The regalia and symbols of spiritual and temporal power have been scattered among the museums of other peoples. The glory of the Stone Age has departed out of Polynesia. The old net is full of holes, its meshes have rotted, and it has been laid aside. What new net goes a-fishing? This is Bill Southworth reporting. Even early New Zealand newspapers had their investigative reporters. One, who styled himself the vagrant, decided to investigate the conditions in the Dunedin police cells. This report from Gregor Campbell. I made up my mind to leave the ordinary rut and endeavour to obtain a view of the night side of the city, so fair to look upon by day, and plumb the lower depths of life which, shrouded by darkness and remote from law-abiding people by the nature of things, were hidden from the common eye. Therefore, I said to myself, I will be a drunkard for one night only, get myself locked up, if possible, as a casual offender against sobriety, and see what life is like behind the cell door. I waited until a suitably late hour, for I did not desire unnecessary publicity, and sailed forth in search of a policeman sufficiently enthusiastic in his business to run me in. It was a wild night. A keen and biting wind swept along the almost deserted streets, causing the lamps to flicker fitfully and spasmodically illume the footpaths, shining wet with the frequent icy showers. Having drawn a blank in McLagan Street, I next turned my attention to Rattray Street and staggered along from the corner to opposite Cargill's Monument, fatuously holding on to veranda posts and falling against window shutters in a limp and helpless manner. Still no sign. Then I betook myself up Princess Street, taking the whole of the footpath on my devious way, pausing and leaning now and then against a doorway, ostensibly to take my bearings. I was much amused when, during one of these frequent pauses in my erratic journey and simply leaning against a doorway, some young men passed me and said to one another, there's another sore head in the morning, I'll bet. 
I leaned against the window of the Excelsior Hotel and in a few minutes was unexpectedly gratified by hearing the step of not one, but two policemen. I was on the Dowling Street frontage, and as soon as they came abreast of me, the nearer one caught sight of me and darted forward with, What's this? He seized me by the collar and straightened me up, asking me what was the matter. I made some maudlin reply, and then, in order, I suppose, to test whether I really was drunk or not, he gave me a ringing smack on the ear with his open hand. This sent my hat, already carefully bruised in, flying over the footpath, and revealed the fact that my head was bald. The destitution of hirsute covering on my cranium so tickled my captor that he gave me another smack in the region of my organ of veneration. I suppose these tests are necessary before a policeman can be certain a man is drunk. Seized by the collar, I was now formally under arrest. A slight tendency which I displayed to lurch in order to carry out the illusion more perfectly was promptly corrected by a smart application of the constable's knee to the small of my back. And after that, I was a little more nearly sober. I was conducted to the cell I was to occupy for the night and found to my surprise and disappointment that it was already occupied by a bona fide drunk. I had not bargained for such close proximity to the real article, but said nothing. Blankets were brought in, spread on the floor, I was safely deposited in them and my attendants withdrew, bolting the door after them with much clashing and clanking. Of course, I had no opportunity of seeing what was the appearance of the person upon whose privacy I was so suddenly and unceremoniously thrust. By the way, however, in which he moaned and tossed and stertorously breathed, it could be easily gathered that he had been very drunk indeed and that he would shortly awake to find himself suffering the tortures of the condemned. A sickening odour pervaded the place, partly due to the bad, spirit-laden breath of my companion, and the rest owing to the tin vessel placed in one corner near the door for the use of the inmates during the night. It was about half an hour after my incarceration. The keeper came to the little wicket before mentioned, threw the light of his bull's eye on the interior, and asked, All right in there? I replied that I was cold and would like another cell. The official very civilly assented. I was transferred to the sole occupation of the adjoining apartment and furnished with another blanket. I was now tolerably comfortable, having removed my boots, wearing which, it may be remarked, for the benefit of those who may chance to camp out, inevitably produces cold feet, and now looked forward to a little sleep. During the morning, the barrack cook brought me a pannikin of tea, hot and strong, and a sandwich, both of which I heartily enjoyed. I plead guilty and am also let off with a nominal conviction and discharged. In administering the sentence, the chairman gives me a look which made me quake, for I thought he recognised me as an old acquaintance, but no sign of acknowledgement was visible on his placid countenance, and I breathed again. I was now free, except I had to go to the office to get my valuables returned. Nothing is ever lost on occasions of the kind. The drunken man's best friend is the policeman, notwithstanding the vulgar belief about their proclivities. The watch housekeeper takes down a big book and enters in it my name, my assumed one, my age, nationality, height, colour, religion, 
length of time in the colonies, ship I came in, etc. He asks me my trade and I guardedly tell him anything. I glance at him as he fills up the different columns. He fills up that one-headed degree of education, nil, which should be a splendid note to the professors who guided my tottering footsteps through the classics and the intricate paths of mathematics. Having regained my effects, I am again a free man, and I confess that the first thing I do is to enjoy a hearty smoke. And I have the honour to be the only occasionally vagrant Gregor Campbell for Heritage Matters. Gore's Southern Standard, after detailing a few of the vagrant's exploits, had this comment to make. The vagrant is not altogether unknown in Gore. What will he do next? We would suggest that he pretend to murder somebody in order to see what hanging is like. Before there were computer games, there were comics. They were so popular that some children read little else. Pensioner Ivan Gamble of Mosgiel told Bill Southworth about his youthful fascination with famous comic book characters, such as The Phantom. Sweet, sweet memories you gave me You can't beat the memories you gave me Oh, the Phantom. Now, the Phantom was, I was a great, uh, that was one of my great comics, the Phantom. I used to have a pile of them. And when we moved into Mosgiel, there was a little four square shop round the road, and they used to get new, and I think they must have, I don't know whether they came out monthly or weekly, but uh, I used to uh, shoot round and have a look, and they'd always stick one on the window. And I think it was, if I remember, it was about ninepence or something like that for a, but they were always, the Phantom always had the nice coloured cover at the top and they were sort of a different shape to other comics. But no, the Phantom was one of my favourites. It was a bit unusual, wasn't it? I mean, he sort of ran around in a, in a onesie suit with, uh, with, with a, a mask on <laughs> um, and was known as the ghost who walks. The, Why the, was that? Well, that, that is true. Well, uh, he originally, I think the story was he was a pirate I think in the, when it, before he became the Phantom and he got washed up. I think in the, I'm not sure if I'm right here, but he got washed up in deepest Africa in the jungle. And he come to this tribe, and they are called the Bantu tribe, I think they were. And they sort of, he survived from there. And then he ended up in the cave, and it was a skull cave. And he used to have a throne there, and he used to sort of hold court there with people with the, from, the, from the native tribes. And then somehow he ended up, doing that he was always good he was always helping people in distress and things like that and not only in Africa but he was all over the world in America and all sorts of things like that but of course and he always uh, when he he had this sort of special suit that he wore but uh, when he was out doing his missions but he had this uh, another suit he used to wear he used to have a big sort of like a big Macintosh coat with a hat on and uh, somehow he got friendly with this lady in America and her name was Diana Palmer and he ended up marrying her and uh, they ended up having two children and the two children were called Kit and Heloise (laughs) (laughs) Did you ever get into uh, Superman comics? Uh, Yes I did, yes I had but I was never quite so fussed on Superman so much but uh, I always quite enjoyed them, and uh, 
and of course uh, there was the Superman. Of course, in real life, he was the reporter on the uh, the uh, the paper, and of course his name was Clark Kent. And Clark Kent was a very sort of very staid, very quiet guy with big horn rim glass and most boring looking guy. Didn't they call him the mild mannered reporter? Yes, yeah, and of course he was people always were giving him a hard time, but secretly they didn't know that he was Superman. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. Do you remember the stuff about Kryptonite? Yes, I do. And I think he come from Krypton with Kryptonite and I think there's some reason he could uh, they could take his power away, wasn't it? Was something they could they could uh, That's yeah. right. If there's any Kryptonite around it it weakened him. He's weakened no longer him. Superman. That's right. Yes, yes, yes. I do remember that, yes. Yes. Oh dear. How about Mandrake the magician? I don't remember him so much, but I do remember I know he was very sort of in line in the vogue at the time the Phantom was was about and things like that. But he was very, very popular and I just just wonder if he was had a I think he might have been strips in the ODT or something at some stage. They might have had the Phantom and uh, or it might have been in the uh, the Saturday night paper, the Star Sports. Do you remember with some comics you could write away and get various things like the Phantom Ring? Yes. Remember yes. that? I do, and how I particularly remember that was looking through this, uh, I was looking through the back of this one and they had Phantom Ring, so my eyes stuck out and said, oh my, how could I get one of these? But unfortunately you had to send to Australia, and that was, I was about five or six then, completely beyond my sort of uh, wondering how to get it, but my sister was a bit older than me of course, and and she said, well, I think I could get you one of those, but I'd have to get a money order at the post office in Mosgill. So great to and fro. So she got this money order and we filled out this form and, and duly posted it. And then about three months go by and then lo and behold, my skull ring arrived. Wow. I could got, it was a rubber ring with a, and, and it had the phantoms skull mark on. And of course, I don't know if I said that, but the phantom, when he was fighting evil and if he, he used to, anybody that was really bad, he hit them hard or something with his fist with his skull ring on, and it always left the skull mark embedded on this person's jaw. And of course, that the whole idea was, so when you got this rubber ring, you could actually have a little, uh, like a stamp pad, put it on, stamped it, and you could go up to your friends or something, give it a poke under the jaw and leave the skull stamp on it. Ivan Gamble talking to Bill Southworth. This program has been generously sponsored by the Southern Heritage Trust. The Trust works to protect the city's heritage, particularly its fine old buildings and all the things that make Dunedin New Zealand's heritage capital. The Trust welcomes new members. It can be contacted at southernheritage.org.nz. That's southernheritage, all one word, .org.nz. This podcast was produced by ORFM Dunedin with support from New Zealand On the Air.